Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Right, well, for our visitors, um, we um, have a practice. We just work our way through whole books of the Bible. And so you're just lucky today we, we've landed on, on Mark chapter 10. And the heading that the editors of my Bible gave today's reading is teaching about divorce. And that's probably a fair heading because that's the question the Pharisees asked. And ultimately, Jesus did answer that question when his disciples asked him about it again when they were behind closed doors. But Jesus didn't really give the Pharisees teaching on divorce. He gave them teaching on marriage. See, Jesus didn't want to go into all of the legalities of what one can and cannot do when it comes to ending a marriage. He didn't want to go into the what-ifs and the curly questions and the scenarios and the loopholes. When Jesus was asked the question, he shifted the conversation to a very different direction. He shifted it to God's wonderful design for marriage. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, God's design for marriage. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your good gift of marriage. And as we study the words of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, today, we ask that you would soften our hearts. Lord, we stand before you today as a people who are very aware that your design for marriage is very different to that in our present culture, and it's different in many ways. Uh, the world can be very insistent in telling us what we should think of marriage, but we ask that you would deaden the clamour of advice that comes from a broken world and help us to recognise your still, small voice. But Lord, help us also to recognise the hardness of heart that we carry into our marriages and reveal to us the personal changes that we need to make to bring glory to you in our marriages. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Righto. Now, when it comes to rejecting the word of God... Seems a funny way to start, doesn't it? But when it comes to rejecting the word of God, there's two ways to go about it. Some people will be confronted by the word of God on a given matter and they'll just reject it. Nah, that's not for me. And they move on. 
But some others, well, they not only reject it, but they feel that it's their duty to let everybody else know about, about it as well and try and stop anybody else from following God's word. And they feel it's their duty to set other people free from their delusion about God. And people like this might see Bible teaching, such as what we're having here today, as something that the preacher is doing or something that the church institution is doing to try and control people who just don't know any better or to try and force you to believe stuff that anybody who had any common sense wouldn't believe or to try and coerce you into rejecting worldly values that they see as being your basic human rights and human freedoms. And for those who take this sort of position sometimes to, to try and argue, well, what they do is, is they, they try and find a topic or a question that is contentious. And they look for a curly question that they think is surely going to stump this person. And they pose that question to them, not because they actually want an answer, but because they just want to try and catch that person out. Now, from time to time, I have to try and deal with stuff like this. Um, but it's not at all a new thing. Jesus had to deal with that sort of thing all the time. And today's reading is an example of one of those instances. It's pretty evident that the Pharisees didn't want to learn from Jesus' teaching. All they wanted was to try and catch him out. You see, they already had firmly established views on the matter of divorce. Uh, there were a couple of different positions. One teaching came from Shammai, and it took a very conservative line that would allow divorce only in instances of adultery. The other school of thought, which came from Hillel, was a very liberal view, and it allowed divorce for just about anything that, that the wife did that displeased her husband. So even if she had made a habit out of burning the bread when she baked it, or if she displeased the husband in the way that she looked then that allowed the husband to divorce his wife. And so the Pharisees, well, they wanted to catch Jesus out. And Jesus, in their eyes, had already shown himself to be lax on religious issues, such as the Sabbath. Uh, in their eyes, Jesus was watering down the religious law. And so they thought, all right, well, we'll ask him about a moral issue. And surely he'll be lax on that one as well. And that'll prove he's not from God. So to test Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now that's a tough question for them to ask because in the Old Testament there actually is no law saying whether it's, a, whether it's lawful or whether it's not. And the language here that, that gets used is really interesting. Basically, like they know that there's no law that says you can do it or you can't do it. And so they sort of go into what the law allows or doesn't allow. But Jesus directed them to a command. Jesus said, what did Moses command you? But then they talk it back to an allowance again. And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Well, not really. It wasn't that Moses allowed them to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Uh, that was the practice of their community. You see, at the time of Moses, 
people in the ancient world were already divorcing their wives. This isn't a new phenomenon. It's been around forever and a day. And in ancient times, in the ancient world, it was really tough being a woman. If the husband decided that he was going to divorce his wife, what would become of the divorced woman? In the ancient world, a man would just, could just discard his wife. He would divorce her and discard her. There was no such thing as alimony. There was no such thing as welfare. The title of land was held by the men, not the women. How could she even survive? It was terrible. And so, in the Jewish culture, well, in, that, in the ancient world, um, the best option for her was to get remarried. But how could she remarry? She was already married to somebody else, and what evidence was there of the divorce? What evidence was there that she wasn't married anymore? And so we don't know where it came into being. It's not recorded when it happened in the Bible, but somewhere along the line in Jewish culture, they brought in this thing called the certificate of divorce, and that was their practice in the day. And so as a life-giving right of the divorced woman in Jewish culture, she would be given a certificate of divorce so that she could marry another. And the certificate of divorce actually had, written, had that written on it. Right? So this is a certificate of divorce that they're talking about. It was more about looking after the one who was divorced. It was more about looking after the one who was discarded and rejected than what it was about allowing a man to divorce his wife. All right? It was happening that the certificate was to give some rights to this woman. But that still doesn't get down to the guts of what Moses' law was actually about. Let's read it. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of Yahweh. Do not bring sin upon the land Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. Right? In Deuteronomy, Moses was giving them a law that dealt with a much bigger issue than divorce itself. It was about men who used an excuse to divorce their wives and who would treat marriage something like a progressive dance, you know, where you'd have one partner for a little while and then you'd chuff that one off and the next one turns up. And who knows, you might even get her back again at the end. Once heard somebody describe it as serial monogamy, uh, where you have one wife, but you just keep changing her. And you might end up with a back again. And what Moses is saying is this practice is an abomination to God. This law dealt with the constant changing of partners. 
It was about wife swapping or husband swapping from the other perspective. The Pharisees, though, with their legalistic brains, looked at it and saw it from the perspective, well, Moses must allow divorce because he didn't forbid it. Woohoo! Everybody changed partners, now all join hands. Right? But Jesus is really clear. It's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this command. In the scriptures, God makes it very clear. God hates divorce. Divorce is never seen as a good thing. But the reality is that God doesn't seem to forbid it. Now, does he not forbid divorce because that's part of his plan after all? I don't think so. It's a pragmatic response. It's something that God allows under certain limited circumstances because of the hardness of heart of us humans. Under certain circumstances, this became the most life-giving option. Do you know the biggest cause of failed marriages today? It's not a hard question. It's hardness of heart. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that is the only cause of failed marriages. Hardness of heart. Now, you've probably heard a statistic that gets trotted out quite regularly that Christians are just as likely to get divorced as anyone else in the world. Have you heard that statistic? It's not true. Um, I guess it depends pretty much on what your definition of a Christian is. Is a Christian someone who, when they're filling out the census, goes down the list, uh, Muslim, Islam, uh, Hindu, Christian? All right, that's me. Tick the box. Is a Christian somebody who just ticks the Christian box on a census? Or is a Christian a disciple of Jesus who is seriously following Jesus? They're two very different things. Focus on the Family quotes a study that says that 60% of people who identify as being Christian but rarely attend church have been divorced. But only 38% of those who do regularly attend church have been divorced. And of course, we know that even attending church regularly, that doesn't actually make me a fair income disciple of Jesus. Last week, we talked about salt and how salt is known by its taste. And unsalty salt isn't salt at all. And disciples of Jesus are known by their taste. We're known by the fruit that we produce in our lives. And disciples of Jesus, who aren't producing the fruit of the Spirit, aren't disciples of Jesus at all. The biggest cause, the only cause of failed marriages is hardness of heart. In marriage, two people join together and become one flesh. And if one or both of those hearts are hard, how can they possibly join and meld together in the one flesh relationship that God has designed? And so Jesus, he could have taught them about divorce, but he didn't. He taught them about marriage. Because when we understand marriage and we understand what marriage is really about, well, we don't really need to ask about divorce. 
Now, we may come today with a skewed image of what marriage is. Uh, the world would have us believe that marriage is a means for me to have my needs met. And if in my marriage my needs are not being met, well, there's no purpose for that marriage to continue. That's often the world's view. But marriage is so much deeper than that. The theological depth of marriage. I, I spent a lot of time preparing for the message today because it is so deep. It's something that I have trouble getting my, to, my mind to wrap around it. It is so hard to put it into words. It, it is so much of a mystery and yet it's the amazingly beautiful plan of God that when we're faithful to God, even in all of our failures, we seem to be able to muddle our way through it. It's amazing. So, what does Jesus teach us about marriage? Well, God's plan for marriage is exactly that. It's a plan. It's a design. Now, when I say it's a plan for marriage, I don't mean it's sort of like, hmm, I plan I might go here next weekend and do such and such, but then it might rain and so I mightn't do that after all. God's plan is a design. It's more like a, a blueprint. It's like the designs that you have to put into council for a building that you're going to build. And, and then you actually have to build the building according to those designs. If you don't, then it might fall down. It's... God's plan for marriage is this design, the very act of creation itself and how God created man and God created woman. This is the very foundation of marriage. Now, if I was given this message 20 or 30 years ago, I wouldn't have to spend much time on this point because 20 or 30 years ago it was, it was obvious that men married women and women married men. Um, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but men and women are different. Have you noticed that? We're different to each other. And we're not just physically different. We're different in all sorts of ways. Men, it's not a defect in your wife if she enjoys handicrafts. It's not a defect in your wife if she likes flowery curtains or, or pink colour schemes in the lounge room. It's not a defect in her character that she enjoys watching girly movies. And women, it's not a defect in your man if he enjoys shooting and fishing. It's not a defect in your man that he doesn't understand the problem with dismantling an engine in your kitchen. Right? It just means you haven't given him enough shed space. Now, you think that's funny? Well, man, you wait and see how funny it is when your wife starts using your precision vernier calipers as a shifting spanner to tighten up nuts. Now, some people, with what I've just said now, have probably got their hackles up about stereotyping. I've just stereotyped, haven't I? But you know what a stereotype is? It's something which is generally and mostly true. Now, I don't want to pull you down, Doug, but I know ben Bernie shoots better than you do. <laughs> And she, she does time and time again, uh, right? But, so it's not always true, but it generally is true. We are different. We're designed to be different. We're designed to complement each other. We are very different, but in our differences, we are designed to be together. 
a man and a woman are designed to come together in a physical union in a way that a man and a man or a woman and a woman are not designed to come together. 20 or 30 years ago, that was obvious. It doesn't seem to be so obvious today. Now, I don't want to spend much time on this, but I do need to say this. Over the whole same-sex marriage thing and, and why the Christian church doesn't support it, I get really tired of the accusations that get thrown at us of intolerance, uh, the accusations of hatefulness, the accusations of fear. I get tired of the argument that seems to always get made that scripture is a product of its time and that it condemns same-sex relationships because the ancients just didn't know any better. That is so empty. It is so shallow of an argument because Jesus spells out the theology of marriage. Right? This is what God has to say on the issue. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with cultural things. And this is what the disciples of Jesus base their understanding of marriage upon. It's got nothing to do with what's culturally acceptable or what's not culturally acceptable in their day or in our day. Now, Jesus was never backwards in coming forwards when it came to being counterculture, right? God challenged his, sorry, Jesus challenged his culture in many ways. And Christians have, right throughout history, challenged their culture in multitudes of ways. And the church today should never be backwards in coming forwards when it comes to being counter to culture, if this is what it means to honour God. It's all in God's design. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Right? This, is, this is the pillar, this is the foundation on which marriage is built. Since the end of 2017, legally in Australia, a man can marry a man. Or a woman can marry a woman. And for Australia, and legally, that's the way it is. But if the truth be told, we do need to understand that theologically, in God's eyes, it's not marriage. It's a parody of marriage. It's an imitation. But it's a distorted imitation. Now, I want to be really clear here. I'm not at all suggesting that for most people who pursue same-sex marriage, that they're personally doing it to mock God. I'm not suggesting that. The reason that most people seek to marry their partner is they want to have their relationship affirmed in the institution called marriage. And whilst our country gives that affirmation, the problem comes that the relationship that they want affirmed is something that God does not affirm and he never has affirmed it. So if any person chooses to live contrary to God's affirmation, that's between them and God. If they want to get married in the eyes of the state, well, that's one matter. But be aware that it's not marriage by the definition of God. So... 
From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Right. The, the old rhyming saying was leave and cleave. Um, has anyone ever heard that saying? That's part of being married. You leave and cleave. I don't like the word cleave. What a strange word the word cleave is. Do you realise the word cleave has two different meanings and they're the exact opposites? What a strange word. So the word cleave can mean to split, split apart. So you're cutting firewood, you split firewood, you cleave firewood. That's what a cleaver is, a thing that you chop things apart with in the kitchen. I have a great big cleaver that used to belong to my dad. And every morning he'd go out to the meat block and he'd cut the chops for breakfast. He'd cut down with the butcher's knife and then he'd pull the cleaver down off the hook above the meat block and chop through the bone. That's what it means to cleave, to split apart. But as only I think the English language can do, it also means the exact opposite. To cleave means to join together, to glue together. Um, and so the old King James Version says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. I suspect Henry VIII might have got the two definitions of cleave mixed up. And that's why I don't like the word cleave. It's a strange word. It's its own antonym. Anyway, let's get back on track. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That means to be glued together, to be joined together, to be bonded together permanently. Such that if you break it apart, it's not actually the glue that's broken. It causes a fracture in what has been joined together. Now that's the sort of join that's made between a husband and a wife. The problem comes when some people try to include into that join one of their parents or some of their parents. Bad move. A man and a woman marry each other. They're not marrying the parents and they're not marrying the brothers and sisters of the other. You do not bring the other person's parents into your marriage. You do not bring their brothers and sisters into the marriage. Yes, when you get married, you inherit their family. They are your in-laws. Welcome to the in-laws. But they don't come into your marriage. There's only room for the two of you in there. Now, somebody once told me, the Bible only says that, that the man has to leave his parents to get married, and that's not the case with the woman. Uh, in their view... The woman doesn't have to leave her parents and that can cause all sorts of troubles. Um, I believe even though the scriptures don't explicitly say it, I think this is one of these instances where we just take it that we both leave our parents. The man leaves his parents and the woman leaves her parents. And, and all sorts of troubles can enter a marriage when either the husband or the wife are still joined to the parents. Where, their parents, where the parents of one of them seems to still have influence or control over the partners in the marriage. It's a recipe for disaster. Husbands and wives, you are one. With the big issues and the life choices you make, 
Make sure you discuss them with your husband or your wife. Maybe later on you might bring other people in to, to bounce your ideas off and to seek their wisdom. And that might include your parents. It might include your brothers and sisters. But you and your spouse are one. And it spells disaster for a marriage when either the husband or wife have not left their parents. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What a profound thing the one flesh relationship is. Who can understand it? Who can possibly understand the one flesh relationship? I have here a little piece of plywood. Plywood's a very strong sort of a material. Um, it gets its strength because the timber, the grain, runs in two different directions. And they make layer upon layer and glue it together. Can't find two ply uh, out here, certainly not strong thick and strong enough to see, but you'll get the point. The timbers are very different, but they're glued together and they become one. And the two different timbers glued together become a lot stronger than what either of them would be on their own. And it keeps them flat, stops it from warping. And the bond between the two timbers is so strong that if I try and prise them apart... It splits and destroys the timber, not the glue. And I actually did that yesterday with this little piece here. I'll pass it around. You can't get it apart without tearing little bits of the timber away. Do you want to take that take and pass it around? Bit of show and tell happening today. But also, plywood is best manufactured from virgin timber. Yes, it would be possible to manufacture plywood from second-hand timber. It would be possible, but it wouldn't be very good. It would be an inferior product. Why? Because the timber has already been cut and moulded and shaped in ways that can't be undone. And so there's limits to how a good product can come out of binding to used products. And the same thing goes for marriage. God designed for marriage is that before marriage, we shouldn't be joined to anyone else. There's an old-fashioned word that doesn't seem to get used anymore, fornication. And it's a word a lot of people don't even know the definition of anymore. Basically, it's sex before marriage. And the reason God forbids fornication isn't because he's some kind of spoil sport. It's because God wants, when you to get married, he wants your marriage to be strong. He wants it to be an unhindered one flesh relationship. It's because God knows that when a man and a woman come together physically, 
They are being joined together in some kind of way such that when, it's, when they split up, a piece of that person fractures. A bit like that piece of prized apart plywood looks like as you go that on part sing around. Earlier on, I used the word mystery. It's a profound mystery for a man and a woman to become one flesh. And it's not just a sexual thing. It's a joining together of the person. In the Hebrew, the word was basically they became one meat. I think what it's getting at is the marriage relationship is so intimate that the bond is so permanent, it is so binding, the two are one. If you hurt the other person, well, you mightn't feel that you're hurting yourself. But you know what? You are hurting the oneness that God has created in your marriage. If you starve the other, you are starving the oneness in your marriage. If you mock the other, you are mocking the oneness. If you abuse the other, you're abusing the beautiful unity that God has created. But if you honour the other, if you bless the other, if you value the other, if you give time to the other, you're doing it not for them, but you're doing it for the oneness of the two of you together. You're doing it for your union. You're doing it for this one flesh relationship. The one flesh relationship explains, you know how sometimes you know what your spouse is thinking, even before you ask them? And sometimes they might even try and hide how they're feeling and they pretend that everything's okay, but you know that it's not. And you can feel it. You can sense it. Because it's not only them who feels it. You're feeling it too. Because it's your oneness that's feeling the hurt. The one flesh relationship explains how you can just delight being with this one particular person in their presence. And you mightn't even need to say anything to them. You just like being in their company. Seemingly for no apparent reason. It's because the oneness thing is happening. But it also explains why to lie to the other is the ultimate betrayal. Because it rips apart the oneness and the honesty of oneness. It also explains why adultery and divorce rips the heart out of the individual, like trying to separate that plywood. And so Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God designed marriage to be permanent. Now Jesus often reserves some of his toughest teachings to share privately with his disciples. And when he asked his sorry, when when his disciples asked him to clarify this issue, he had something pretty confronting to say. He said, Whoever divorces his wife 
and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Wow. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? This is God's ultimate design for marriage. Are you beginning to see how unique and how special the marriage relationship is? Are you beginning to see how critical it is that we don't just rush in and, and marry the wrong person? Can you understand why God forbids the, the policy of try before you buy? Can you understand why it's so important that a Christian shouldn't even consider dating a non-Christian? I think I told you this before. Um, it would have to be about 15 years ago now that I smashed my ankle and eventually I had to get it fused. And, and the surgeon said to me before he fused it, he said, Michael, you need to understand this is the biggest decision that you'll ever make in your whole life. He said, this, once it's done, your ankle will never bend again and it cannot be undone. And he said to me, this is bigger than deciding what house you're going to buy. It's bigger than choosing a career. It's bigger than deciding who you're going to marry. He was wrong. Right? He was wrong because he didn't understand God's perspective on marriage. The single most important decision that I have ever made in my life was to say yes to Jesus and become his disciple. That is the most important decision. And without a doubt, the second most important decision that I've ever made was to take the hand of a young lady named Robin Stebbins and before family and friends and in the presence of God, we became husband and wife. And we will be husband and wife until one of us dies. I suspect that'll be me. Robin comes from a family of long living genes. <laughs> but is God's that, that is God's design for marriage. And if husband and wife together are not hard-hearted, the one flesh relationship can work. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I've been told. No, no, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The trouble is our hardness of heart. Now, I'm pretty sure that no one here has a perfect marriage. And where there are flaws in marriage, we can always put it down to hardness of heart. What causes a man to commit adultery? Hardness of heart. What causes a woman to nag and nag and nag? Hardness of heart. What causes one person to demean another? Hardness of heart. What causes one to flirt with somebody who's not their husband or wife? Hardness of heart. What causes someone to run their husband or wife down in front of people or, or in front of the kids? It's hardness of heart that does that. What causes one to dishonour the other? It's hardness of heart. You get the picture? No matter what instance you can think of in marriage that is a big problem, it all boils down to hardness of heart. 
And I can say without any doubt that God's desire is for us to continue in our marriages and for us to soften our hearts. Now, that doesn't mean that God magically fixes our marriage like some of us would hope. But as we hand ourselves over to him, if we soften our hearts, God is in the business of changing hearts. That's something that God does very well, but only when we soften them towards him. Now, having said that, I did say earlier that it appears that in some cases God does allow divorce. And yet here in Mark chapter 10, it seems that it disagrees with that. And some people will look at Mark chapter 10 and have the attitude of a lawyer or perhaps the attitude of a judge and say, there you go, there's the legislation, black and white, straight down the line, there's no divorce, there's no getting married again after divorce. But we do need to keep in mind that the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all of the Gospels. Um, Jesus here in Mark outlines God's plan, God's design for marriage. This is the way God wants us to live. But it doesn't go into all of the intricacies and all of the different circumstances that we can find ourselves in. In other passages in the scriptures, there are two exceptions to when divorce is allowable. And we don't have time to go into those now, but I've already um, preached on those passages before. Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're wanting to, to read them some stage. But something else to keep in mind is divorce is not the unforgivable sin. There is life after divorce. Now I'm very aware that today I'm speaking to people of all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different histories, and all sorts of current circumstances. Um, and I'm not only speaking to the people here today, I know that this video is used by another whole church, and I'm speaking to people there. I know that other people are downloading the videos or the, or the audio messages as well across the world and we come from all sorts of different places in life some of you are single some of us are married some of you are divorced some have been divorced and are now married to another some may be struggling with their sexuality and what you've heard today is very different to what you've heard before coming from the world some may be in a marriage where the hardness of heart is tearing one or both of you apart. But it's certainly tearing the one flesh relationship apart. God's message to all of us today is to honour God today. Honour God tomorrow. Honour God for the rest of your life. When we repent, and this is the good news of Jesus, when we repent, God forgives us for whatever mess we've created in the past. 
When we confess our sins, he forgives us of every one of our sins. God wants us to honour him from now on. Let's work together for strong marriages with two softened hearts becoming one flesh. You've got to realise it takes two softened hearts. This isn't something you can do on your own. It takes two softened hearts. And I guess a sad reality is I always, whenever I talk to somebody about marriage, I always have to warn them, hey, if you find yourself in a relationship where you experience violence, um, don't straight away get up and divorce your hubby or your wife. But for your safety, you may need to um, separate for a time and have some counselling. Because it actually takes two softened hearts to work through this. And sometimes it takes a third person to, to get another person to listen. So my prayer is that we would work towards strong marriages by having two softened hearts becoming one flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray today for those who are listening to this who are married. Lord, I want to thank you for the gift of marriage, for your wonderful design of marriage, and for the blessing that it is to be married. How wonderful it is that you would take two separate people and join them together to become one. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that for our part, we've failed. In many ways we fail. Our hearts have been hard. Lord, I pray that you would soften the hearts of every person here and that you would heal the wounds that exist in our marriages. Lord, I pray for those who are single. If it is your will for them to marry, then Lord, guide them to the one that you have set for them. Give our young men wisdom to seek a young woman of God. And give our young women wisdom to seek a young man of God, a man who has such a strong faith that he would be a spiritual leader in their family. And Lord, we ask that you would give them patience to wait. Gracious Jesus, we pray for those who have had the heartache of broken marriage and divorce. Lord, may they experience your grace and your renewal as you set them free from the brokenness of the past and as they enter your wonderful, life-giving future in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we look forward with anticipation for the final marriage, for the royal wedding, when Jesus Christ returns to be joined together with his church, that we become one with our Lord. Amen.